Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. And this is London, but broadcasting to you, of course, thanks to the wonders of the internet. I started by saying, beware the Ides of March. From Shakespeare's epic work, Julius Caesar, the Ides of March was supposed to be a troubling time where uncertainty, unsettled, fearful, even terrified people quaked because they could sense that something very bad was happening and was going to get worse. It's pretty accurate about today. Though I'm about to say that William Shakespeare himself was put into quarantine at the time of the plague. And whilst in quarantine, he wrote King Lear, sharper than a serpent's tooth is the whole idea of quarantine. But if we are to be self-isolating or isolated by others, then we must make the best possible use of it. And I'm going to give you some ideas as to the way forward, as best I'm able, as a non-doctor, as a non-scientist, but as someone who knows about public policy, who knows something about leadership. The leadership in this country has been a miserable, disastrous failure. It is utterly unclear, it is completely contradictory, and it's not even being enunciated through the mouth of the Prime Minister. Where is Boris Johnson? What on earth is he doing? The Prime Minister or someone senior should be talking to the British people every single day of this crisis. In fact, he could be in a freezer. He might be on a tropical isle. He might even have coronavirus. I don't know. I just know he's not here. He's not on the airwaves. He's not giving a lead to the people of this country, to the health service workers, to whom I take my hat off tonight, who are laboring under the most enormous crisis conditions, with absolutely no lead, with nothing to work with, with no space, no resources, no money, no proper pay, and above all, no leadership from the state. It's a commonplace that we're all two paychecks away from absolute poverty, absolute misery and poverty. Who knew we were just one little epidemic away from an existential threat to the very existence of our society itself? As you'll see when I come to go through the papers, they're talking about having the army on the streets, guarding the supermarkets, guarding the hospitals. Who knows? Arresting people who should be locked up in their homes in isolation. 
It is true what was leaked. They are going to require everyone over the age of 70 to be locked away. Locked away. Your mother and father, your grandmother and grandfather, the man who taught you, the man who taught you piano, the man who taught you football, the man who's the manager of your football team if you're a Crystal Palace supporter. Roy Hodgson will be locked away for 14 weeks in isolation, whether they are ill or not, whether they have any symptoms or not. Yet just two weeks ago, Donald Trump told us the whole thing was a Democratic Party hoax. And just one week ago, less than one week ago, Boris Johnson set his face against all of the extraordinary extreme steps that day by day are now coming to pass, whilst refusing to take other steps that every other country in the world has taken. The one that has been a huge success, China. The one that's been a success, but less so, South Korea. The one that's been so far a failure, Italy. Ditto Iran. France, Spain, Denmark have all put their whole societies into lockdown. They've canceled the schools. They've canceled all meetings, canceled all gatherings, canceled all football games. In France, they've shut everything except the pharmacy and the tobacconist because it's France. In Britain, we haven't done any of these things, but we're planning on sending our parents and grandparents behind a locked door for 14 weeks, whether they are sick or not. So at the very least, the British government's policy towards this virus is utterly, completely contradictory. Which one is it, Boris? Is it taking it on the chin, keeping calm, carrying on, or is it running for cover and locking ourselves down? You've got to tell us. And you've got to take decisive action against panic buying, bulk buying, which is leaving people who couldn't find the money to pay up front for a bulk purchase. It's leaving the people with children, with dependents, unable to get necessities because some selfish, sociopathic creep bought everything that was on the shelf, whether they needed it or not, some of them even with a view to selling it at a further profit somewhere down the line. On Amazon, you can buy a pack of eight toilet rolls for 39 pounds, the best part of 50 US dollars. Boris Johnson, you have to get to grips with profiteering. You have to get to grips with bulk buying.
you have to give people a lead. Should they go or should they stay? Should we keep our children off school or should we send them to school? Well, they might well pick up the virus and bring it home and kill their old grandmother. You see the point I'm making? Nobody knows what your policy is. Even if some of us have views on what it should be, whatever it should be, nobody even knows what it is. You're a miserable failure, Boris Johnson. You see yourself as Winston Churchill. Do you think Winston Churchill would be leaving us in the dark, in the silence, at this grave peril, this threat to our whole way of life? Do you think he'd be silent, locking himself away, doing God knows what? I've got my ideas as to what you are up to. And here they are. I think what you said at first really was your policy. You really did think that actually we should go for the herd immunity approach. You know when the heights of Ottawa were being stormed, the British commander sent the Scottish regiments recklessly into the front. And he said that it's no great mischief if they fall. What he meant was, these Scottish soldiers are expendable. It's no great mischief if they fall. And that's, I think, what your policy really was, Boris Johnson. Because people like you think it's no great mischief if the very old, if the very sick, if the very expensively cared for, if those who can no longer turn a profit for anyone, those who are no longer even much of a customer for everyone, if they are to fall, it's no great mischief. That's what I believe about you, Boris Johnson. I believe that for you and for the political and economic system that you represent, it would be no great mischief if some of us fell, if half a million of us fell, if a million, two million of us fell, well, there'd be a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, legacies, a lot of legacy spending, a lot of people opening a lot of wills. I believe that about you, Boris Johnson, because my opinion of you could scarcely be lower, but it just got a whole lot lower this week as I contemplate the miserable failure of your leadership during this time of great anxiety and fear, even terror amongst our people. My mother is over 70. My mother is over 80. What do you think it said to her today when your minister, Hancock, Tony Hancock, a clown, confirmed that she and millions like her are going to have to lock themselves away for 14 weeks. I'll tell you, 
what it said to her? Death. It said to her that I'm going to lock myself here for 14 weeks and I will never emerge again. That's what millions of our people heard from you through your health minister on the television today. It's my view that the Chinese approach, as I said last week, which has beaten this thing, shows the superiority of their political and economic system to ours. We're only an epidemic and two paychecks away from utter disaster, but they are not. They have a government and a state that's on their side. They have a government and a state that is competent, has the powers and the determination to use them to confront a public health catastrophe like the coronavirus, like COVID-19. They did not neglect their health services over the last 40 years in the way that we did. And this is not just a matter of socialism versus capitalism because Germany has four times as much ICU capacity as we do. Why? Why has Germany got four times more critical care beds than us? Why does Germany have five times more ventilators in their ICUs than we do? 10% of all the Italian patients needed ventilation. If our numbers keep going up at this rate, we'll be dying for breath because there was no ventilator available to help us breathe. These are the Ides of March. These are deeply troubling and troubled times. We've been through these before even worse than these before. The difference was in 1940 and 1941, when Hitler was at the Channel ports, when the Nazi hordes were threatening to invade and occupy us, we had a leader, Boris Johnson. We had a leader. Now, on August 27th last year, young Harry Dunn, who would have been 20 years old this week, imagine how his mother on Mother's Day feels, will feel about the loss of a young man who was still a teenager when a woman driver, an American woman driver, driving on the wrong side of the road struck him on his motorcycle and killed him and then fled the country. It was said erroneously, in my view, that she was able to flee the country because she was an American diplomat's wife. As a matter of fact, she was not the wife of an American diplomat and even if she had been the Diplomatic immunity rules are not for the avoidance of facing the music of such 
a banal but brutal and deadly and fatal crime as killing someone through careless driving. That's not what the protocols are for. Uh, but in any case, her husband was not a diplomat. Her husband was an intelligence officer. And we now know that not only was her husband an intelligence officer, but so was she, Anne Sakulis, for it is she. As a matter of fact, she was an intelligence officer superior to her husband. So she was not here as the wife of a diplomat. She was here as a senior intelligence officer. And that's why, in my view, she was allowed to flee the country. And she is now prospering in Langley, Virginia, at the head of 100 people in her own section. Something to do with Russia. She's a, she's a Russia speaker. She's a Russia specialist. I have no idea what she was doing in Britain. She was just here as the wife of a diplomat. And if you believe that, I've got a bridge here in London that I could sell you. Anyway, to make matters worse, the British government pretended to be outraged that this woman had fled the country when the truth was not just rather different but was diametrically opposite. Now, Rad Seiger is a lawyer and he's the spokesman for Harry Dunn's family. And I must say, Rad, you've done a fantastic job. If I'm ever in trouble, I want you as my family spokesman. Thank you. So leave your business card. I want to start with what's in the mail on Sunday today, which is proof positive that the government were lying when they said that they tried to stop Ansakoulis from escaping justice. Am I right? Is that your reading of that? That's 100% accurate, that story, George. And, you know, thank you for that. You've just encapsulated everything, um, our whole case in those few minutes. And, you know, it's, it's as you said, it's, it's, it would have been Harry's 20th birthday next week, mothering Sunday next week. And his mother and parents are, are sat at home this evening, utterly devastated, not only with the loss of their son, but everything that they have been put through. So as we enter this conversation, I would just ask everybody to bear in mind that there are human beings suffering at home tonight. Yes, and to lose your teenage son, I have one myself, is unimaginably devastating. But you can't even get the closure of knowing what really happened. And if someone's recklessness, criminal negligence, dangerous driving, dangerous driving was to blame, that, that they're punished for that. However, lightly, they're found guilty. Never mind the punishment. They're found guilty. There's a sense of closure. Harry's mother and father are, are not getting that because of this evasion. Let's not forget who the real culprits are here. Trump and his administration in recalling her in the first place. And as you'll know better than me, that's a, you know, an incredible violation, as you say, of international law and the Vienna Convention. But, you know, in your deepest, darkest hour, George, you would have thought that you, you could expect your government to come along 
and scoop you up and look after you and help you achieve the justice that you so deserve. And you might remember back um, in September and October, this family retreated like lepers. If it wasn't for me, for the neighbors, for their friends who, you know, you know, rallied around and helped them, you would never have heard of us. This would have all been swept under the carpet. And that is the most galling thing about this is, you know, where is this government? It's third duty, George. As you know, you used to be, you know, in power. It's the first duty of a government to safeguard and protect the lives of its citizens. And it just hasn't happened here. And I am more angry tonight um, than I have been. You can, see, you can see why now. What were they doing? They effectively waved her off at the airport. Yes, exactly. Outrageous. A smoking gun text message shows a foreign office official acquiesced to American spy Ansar Kulas, leaving Britain on the next flight out following the death of teenage motorcyclist Harry Dunn. Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab told the Commons that his department had objected in clear and strong terms to former CIA agent Ansar Kulas, not former of course at all, fleeing to America after the fatal crash outside RAF Crowton last August. But he's now been forced to disclose private communications between British and US officials in the days before Sekulis left after Harry's family took legal action against the Foreign Office. An incendiary text message exchange between a senior Foreign Office official and his US counterpart suggested that Miss Sekulis was free to leave on the next commercial flight. They're bound to rights. Thanks to your efforts, you. freedom of information, they're banged to right as liars. Liars to Harry's mother, liars to the parliament, liars to the British people. Now, you know, what are the consequences if, if, if you mislead parliament, George? And that's what happened that day. I, you know, to, to us, it's a very serious matter. And, uh, you know... But we, once upon a time, it would have meant, in the time of profumo, uh, absolute political banishment. Uh, to the equivalent of a power station in Ulan Bator. It's got to be again. This is, this is the mother. Your show is the mother of all talk shows. This is the mother of all scandals, George. And we are going to expose it and make sure that those responsible are held to account. It, the parents are heroes. They've not brought this, these judicial review proceedings for their own benefit. They've lost their son. They're doing it for you and me. They're doing it to make sure that this government is held to account. Because what happened to this family after they lost their son, should never happen again. And you might call me naive, and you might say, Rad, forget it, you're up against the establishment and you'll never get anywhere. Absolutely not. We've moved a mountain and we will continue to shift them until you and I can, and can walk out into the street and know that we're going to be safe and that if the worst happens, we are looked after. That we'll, that, that we'll get justice. Absolutely. It, 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 it's quite a contrast to the US demand for the extradition of Julian Assange. <laughs> I merely mentioned in passing. So you know, this is a US government official who killed Harry through reckless, dangerous driving and who escaped justice. Julian Assange is being held in Belmarsh prison, whilst Sokoulos is now in charge of 100 officers at the CIA in Langley, Virginia. Look, I don't know anything about the Julian Assange matter. That's not my interest here. My interest here is representing the parents of Harry Dunn. But what business do the Americans have calling for Julian Assange's extradition when they're refusing to send Anne Sukulis back? And George, you'll know reciprocity is, 
the governing principle behind extradition. You send me your people, I'll send you my people. And that's how it's worked for centuries. If one side is just going to rip up that treaty and say, well, we're going to ignore it, I, nobody here in London is to go to the United States until Ansicoulis is back under no circumstances. And I've made that clear to the, to the, to the British authorities. You just can't have it. The big concern is that this relationship is totally One imbalanced. Yeah. It needs to be reset it's because, well, let's, let's make sure that, isn't, that, that, that doesn't carry on, George. Yes, uh, although we entered an, into a solomon binding treaty, uh, which was a national humiliation. Uh, embarrassing. Embarrassing. I mean, you know, the drafters of, of, of that agreement should hang their heads. Tony Blair's government. Quite, so. quite. And, you know, were they spinning too many plates? Was it done in a rush? Or were the Americans taking advantage of them? We just don't know. But this all has to come out. We will get full disclosure about how we find ourselves in this position where the Americans can um, do what they like and, and um, decide whether, they not, they, whether or not they want to send people over. And yet we are bound, bound to send people over. Mm. The whole thing. So what happens uh, next? Uh, it's now... Uh, in the High Court, when's the next hearing? What will that be adjudicating? The next hearing is on the 2nd of April in the High Court in London, where the court will first of all decide whether these parents have permission to bring the judicial review. That's the first step. That will undoubtedly be granted. The second thing is we're having a bit of a scrap about which documents the governments have to disclose. They've, 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 they've had a half-hearted attempt at disclosing some documents, and you've seen, you've seen what's come out of that, but there's a whole raft of documentation that we haven't seen that they're clearly trying to um, conceal from us, and we won't let it happen. This all has to come out. What are you fighting for? What are your demands? The, the demands are very simple. One, Ansicoulis is coming back. There is no other way. That has to happen. The second thing is this must never happen again. And the only way we're going to ensure that happens, George, is to clarify what's, what's, what goes on at Crowton. What do they do there? You know, we all, we all, we all believe in diplomatic immunity for the right people. If you're, if you're posted to a hotspot country, you need the protection. You, you don't need it here in London or in South Northamptonshire where we live. You're not going to be in danger there. And as you said, if, if, you know, if a crime is committed, you know, Vienna says that you must respect and abide by the laws of your host country. Stay and deal with it. If you had knocked somebody over that, that day or I had done, we would have, you know, gone through the process. It's well, we have. I mean, British diplomats have in, uh, in uh, cases that had nothing to do with diplomacy, more simple criminal cases, Quite. have faced the music in the United States. Quite. And the, actually, the, here's something that the British authorities do do well. They believe in Vienna, and they will not do what the Americans did with Ansicoulis, is just whip them out of the country. I've spoken to many diplomats abroad who have committed crimes, parking fines or more serious matters, and they've just been left to face the consequences. So let's give the, the, you know, the, the British authorities their, their, you know, their due there. They do believe in Vienna, and they, and they follow the rules. America, America is not doing that. And as you say, the unkindest cut of all, that... British citizens have got a right to expect that the British government will have their back. Uh, will it's their be, duty. Will be, for yeah, the first duty. Their first duty. We'll be, we'll be fighting for them, but if I'm any judge, they're probably, behind closed doors, fighting against your uh, clients. You, fighting against Harris Burns. Listen, you, with your background, you may have more insight 
uh, into that than, than, than we do. I, you know, I still believe in, uh, in, th in this government and the democracy that we live in, but every day I open up uh, a newspaper and I see something that cause, ca causes me to disbelieve that. I'd still like to believe, George, that people there in Whitehall are looking after us. But in, with, in, the, in the case of Harry Dunn, I've seen the complete opposite. And that's my sole job here. I'm going to you know, reverse all this, and Sekoulis is coming back, and this family will get the closure that you've just mentioned, and we will make sure that this never happens again to another human being, ever. Dominic Rabb uh, has not covered himself in glory. Uh, I remember, I can't remember when it was, it might have been during the election, uh, he was basically turning his back uh, on, on the parents. Treating them like lepers. And you know, these are the nicest people, George, you would ever want to meet. Dad's a maintenance man and mum works in a GP surgery. The nicest people you'd ever want to meet didn't deserve any of this. I think Dominic Robb has you know, badly let himself down in his handling of it. He's acknowledged that to us, that he, that he, you know, he didn't handle it as well as he could. But, but, but why mislead people? Why lie? He's got a duty of candor, George. If the parents ask him a straight question, who is she, what does she do, what have you done to get us justice, he's, he's required to answer them candidly, and he has failed in that duty of candor. Well, I can only infer, you mentioned more than once my, my background. Here's, here's the inference that flows from my nearly 30 years mm. in Parliament. Uh, that Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The British government and Dominic Rabb knew that she was a very much more important asset of the United States intelligence community uh, than they were ready to divulge. Thus, the, the, I was going to call it uh, uh, the mischief, but in fact, it was a straight falsehood. The falsehood that she was here as the wife of a diplomat, uh, who, a diplomat at uh, RAF, where is it? Crouton. Crouton. It's, it's well known for what? diplomats. It's, really the, it's the hub of the diplomatic uh, community. In fact, they're never done doing diplomacy. Uh, RAF Crouton. <laughs> RAF Crouton. Uh, it must be that she had a much more important role here, that they were prepared to not only let her go, but lie about it for 10 whole days. Uh, before you discovered even a small part of the uh, truth. It's not your job, because you've got more than enough on your plate, but it's somebody's job to inquire into what, what exactly this woman, Ansicullis, was doing here in Britain that was so important. I think the Foreign Affairs Committee, are, which is being constituted at the moment, I've, I've had an indication that they're going to have a very close look at that. Um, and it, it, you're, you're absolutely right. It, you know, it needs to be looked at. But George, I, you know, I, I don't believe this stopped at the door of the, the Foreign Office. I believe this is in number 10. And I want to know what edicts, what orders came from number 10 to the Foreign Office. Because we know the relationship that exists between Mr. Johnson and Mr. Trump. And I, I have a very real concern that 
that the Trump administration is, has sort of exercised its power, leaned heavily on, on the British authorities, and we then end up where, where we end up, which is that, you know, the authorities were trying to kick this family into the long grass, sweep it under the carpet. They met Donald Trump, didn't they? We all met Donald Trump. Did, and were you was, there? I was think. there. And Tell it, us how that went. Well, I mean, it was just a bizarre experience, you know, because we were, we, we were in New York. We just landed. This is six weeks after the family had lost Harry. And um, we were trying to raise the public profile in New York, in New York excuse me, with some, some media work. And my phone went off. And it was the foreign office here in London um, who were explaining to me that the White House wanted to talk to me. And would, they, would I mind if they passed my number on? So I don't know about you. I don't get phone calls from the White House very often. Um, so I said, sure, in 10 minutes. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> 10 minutes later, my phone rang, and it was an, an invitation to go down. George, that should have been the proudest day of my life as an American to go to the White House, to the Oval Office, and meet the president. And as, as you will all have seen, we were ambushed. What the hell were they doing? The woman was in the Oval Office at the time being fated for the intelligence work that you were just talking about. She was, she'd just been promoted, and she was there for a ceremony. And, you know, it was an opportunistic attempt um, to, to get, to get he the... He bounced you. He said, yeah. do you want to meet her? Well, if you'd given me some notice, if you'd said, I've got answer coolest, do you want to come down and see her? I might have considered it. Probably rejected it. But we had no idea why, why, it'd been, why we had been invited down. And you can imagine these four parents, you know, rabbits in the headlight. It's a very intimidating place. Some very large secret service type of people who look like they could kill you with the flick of a finger. And this very large orange looking man, physically very imposing, saying, I've got her in the next room. She wants to meet you. Four times he said, I really want you to meet her. I think this will be a good thing. And somehow, I, I managed to find the courage to go, that's not what we're here for. That's not what we're doing. And then Charlotte, who's very diminutive, but brilliant, very articulate, just stood up to him as well. And, um, you, know, I, you know, how disgusting and disgraceful. These, these Are they offering parents, anything? Are they offering any way out of this? They won't talk to us, George. And that's the most disappointing thing. Despite what you might hear publicly, I do have good dialogue with the, with, you know, with the British government, and there's lots of back-channel stuff going on. I think that's important. The Americans won't talk to us. They don't have the courage to face these parents and to admit that they've done wrong. It's a gargantuan mistake that, that Donald Trump made, and there, there, is, there is no movement there. So I try weekly to engage with the White House and the State Department. They've refused. They continue to refuse. So, look... Ultimately, I, you know. If he was watching now, what would you say to him? I'd say, come on. You know, this is the greatest alliance in the world, supposedly. Prove it. Here's your chance to prove to these parents that, you, you know, you mean what you say, that you care about them, you care about their feelings, that, that we believe in a rules-based system, upholding the rule of law. And it's never going to be tolerated, George. There are millions of people in this country who, like you, think this is an outrage. And ultimately, you know, we, we will have to shut the bases down. I won't let my children drive outside the, the, the you know, RAF Crowton anymore. It's like the wacky races. They, they, you know, many of them don't appear to be able to stay on the side of the road that you and I drive on. This has to change. Uh, uh, listen, I've, 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 I've done begging and pleading with him. He, you know, he's just not interested in anything other than what, what's in his interest. I don't believe he cares about these parents. So, you know, but the, the, the door is always open. If he wants to talk to me, I'm here. President Trump, do the right thing. It would become you.
Rad Sager, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Thank you. If you think it's mad here in the supermarkets and in the corridors of Whitehall and Westminster, it's even madder in the United States, where, if it all goes to script, the Democratic Party are going to field a man whose cognitive unraveling is not only testified to by countless hours of videos of creepy, sleepy, bonkers behavior, but he can't be allowed out alone. If he was in this country, the police would be arresting him in his own good, taking him, trying to lead him gently off the stage, all in the interests of combating coronavirus. The Democrats are going to put up Joe Biden, a degenerate with more baggage than the UPS, against Donald Trump, whose degeneracy and baggage needs no adumbrating from me. Who better to lacerate the ridiculousness of the American political scene than one of the funniest men on the continent, Lee Camp, my colleague, author, presenter, activist, he's everything. He is what we say in Scotland, a lad of perts. He's a man of many parts, one of which is to join me now on the mother of all talk shows. Lee, thanks for coming on board. Thank you, Mr. Galloway. Good to be back. And uh, I don't know if you're like me. I've been drinking nothing but uh, whiskey and Purell cocktails. <laughs> well, I don't drink alcohol, so there's no point in trying to tempt me with that. But um, <laughs> it is the Ides of March, so perhaps we ought to reach for the hemlock. It's hard yes. to know where this is all going to end, Lee. Tell us first about the old coronavirus. How's it going out your way? Well, yeah, there's there's definitely some freaking out. Uh, there is no toilet paper to be found. I don't know why people uh, don't seem to understand that paper towels are not that much different, but uh, people will fist fight you for a, a roll of toilet paper here in the U.S. Um, and, you know, we've had people from war-torn countries saying, I've lived most of my life not knowing when the next bomb was going to hit, yet we've never run out of toilet paper. So uh, it's it's odd the way people react, but, you know, we, we have a president who doesn't believe in science and uh, should have seen this coming for months and yet failed to act and continues to fail to act. And uh, meanwhile, in Canada, apparently they've been working on a vaccine since January and they already have one that is going into testing. We, we here in the U.S., uh, I, I, I don't think there's anything honestly being done. Well, you're, except you're trying to buy a German one exclusively. Uh, so you want the Germans to allow their pharmaceutical company to sell you their vaccine for exclusive use in the United States. How daft do they think the Germans are? Well, yeah, that's that's unfettered capitalism for you, right? We need to own everything outright. We can't possibly share it for the good of humanity. That's right. In fact, you're you're sanctioning Cuba which is actually the place on earth where the cure to many, if not most, of the ills 
of the human race is to be found. They, they cured uh, uh, many diseases already. They've got the vaccines to many more. If there's ever a cure for HIV, it'll arise there. And they're in pole position. And their stuff is being used in China and through China now in Italy. And you're sanctioning Cuba. Whilst Cuba yeah, is this treasure trove of medicine and, and, and biomedical engineering. And, and even before coronavirus, you had uh, cases and news stories of Americans trying to sneak down to Cuba to get cancer treatment that was not allowed to be here in the U.S., even though it's far superior to what we have here in the U.S. But we've sanctioned ourselves out of cures for various illnesses. Well, uh, Donald Trump, uh, uh, he's, like, uh, he's like a cockroach. You know, they say that uh, if there's an atomic uh, bomb dropped, only the cockroaches will survive. Here's this grossly overweight man who shovels junk food down his throat, mm -hmm. who's got bone spar problem, poor fellow. Uh, 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 yeah, he's been shaking hands with all and sundry that have got the virus, but he's turned out to test negative. Were you shocked? Yeah, I mean, he's been he's been tempered in raw crap, as George Carlin would have said. He, you know, I think all that toxic uh, tanning beds he's laid in, which uh, one of the health organizations said tanning beds are uh, equivalent to mustard gas in terms of their toxicity. Uh, clearly, it's done him good, and he's built up an immunity, I guess. That's it. I never thought of that. The tanning beds have killed the virus. They say it doesn't survive. Uh, intense heat and uh, and uh, <laughs> UV, UV. Anyway, turning to the political scene, Lee, um, I was caricaturing it, but only slightly, I think. These two shuffling old fools, Trump and Biden, is that the best the American ruling class can put up to guide their ship of state? Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly pathetic to see the Democratic establishment uh, circle the wagons, get together and push forward this uh, zombie mannequin of a candidate because they all saw the writing on the wall that Bernie Sanders was winning this primary. It was was seeming likely he was going to run away with it because he has actual energy, actual ideas, actual uh, an actual change from the norm, and he got excitement behind him because of that. And so you saw all, all, all in one day, you saw candidate Amy Klobuchar drop out, Beto O'Rourke come back from the dead, Kamala Harris, they all came and they circled and they said, we all want Joe Biden after criticizing him endlessly in the debates and Kamala Harris pointing out how racist he was in his past. And all of those things were just pushed aside and all the corporate candidates got together and held him up and said, we would like this cadaver as the candidate for the Democratic Party. And Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, the tides turned on that following Tuesday and uh, he, he, he but he's still down by only 150 points. However, I don't think he's got much of a shot because we are also seeing that the exit polls uh, on certain states are varying in the same way they did in 2016 from the machine results. Now, many people will point out that exit polls are not always 100 percent accurate. However, they are seem to be accurate in the 2016 Republican side of the primary. They were 
almost dead right. And our U.S. government points to exit polls in other countries and says that if they are off by more than 2%, it could indicate fraud. Yet here in the U.S., where we vote on black box electronic machines, no one sees the code of, all of a sudden we're supposed to accept that the exit polls are far off from the machine results. Well, I was going to raise that very point with you. Great minds think alike. Uh, actually, I'm suspicious about the actual results of many of these democratic uh, primaries. Uh, apocryphally, probably never said it, but it was said of Stalin that he said that the voting is not what counts, it's who's counting the votes that counts. <laughs> yes. And in the case of, for example, Michigan, Bernie Sanders outpolled his announced vote in the exit poll by something like six or seven percent, i.e. three times the limit of where fraud is normally uh, in other countries, in lesser countries, automatically suspected. Is it possible that the Democrats, quite apart from shutting polling stations, keeping people queuing for many hours in order to cast their votes, is it possible they're actually rigging this contest? It's certainly possible, and if they wanted to prove otherwise, then they should make these, the codes of these machines open source. And what coding the people have been able, election integrity activists have been able to acquire and get access to, some of it has shown that votes are being counted with uh, in, a, in a fractional way, meaning a vote is 1.0 rather than just one, which why would you ever need a fractional vote? It raises uh, incredible suspicion. The statistics seem uh, slightly off that fractional voting could be in use. But, you know, if they wanted to prove otherwise, it would be incredibly easy for them to say, here is the open source code. Here is how it works. It, it, anyone can check it. Anyone can see that these are legitimate. We could have open audits of the machines, which in many states were supposed to, but they then block the view. They keep activists or observers out and they try and audit the machines without any uh, witnesses. So it, it, why be so uh, secretive if you have nothing to hide? And then on top of that, uh, the, in a, in a lawsuit a couple of years ago after 2016, the D DNC lawyers said in court in Florida that they have the right, the DNC has the right to rig their own primaries. They proudly said that. They said they are not responsible uh, for the, the, you know, the lawsuit or those who are disenchanted with the results because they have the right to rig their primaries. And, and so why would you say something like that if you weren't involved in some sort of shenanigans? Uh, and as you mentioned, there's so much more than just the exit polls. There's the closing of the polling places, hundreds in Texas, mainly in minority neighborhoods, which were mainly going for Bernie Sanders, uh, especially Latinx voters. In California, you have independents being all handed uh, provisional ballots or false ballots. You know, they are, they are supposedly counted later, but really many of them are thrown out. Greg Palace calls them uh, placebo ballots. So it's just, you can go down the list of how they've rigged this thing. Well, we could, uh, but it would probably Probably be uh, too depressing. The long and the short of it is, it's going to be Biden, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, it, it seems highly likely, even though Bernie Sanders is only down by 150 uh, delegates, uh, Sanders has also said that he will drop out if uh, if Biden is going in with the convention with a plurality rather than a majority of the vote. So he's not, B Bernie Sanders has said he is not going to contest uh, if this is if Biden doesn't have a majority but just has a plurality. So it, it, it does seem like Sanders is setting up to, uh, to dip out and try and, uh, you know, push forward ideas rather than a candidacy, which uh, infuriates a lot of people who believe that uh, Biden is a corporate zombie candidate that agrees with the Republicans on so many issues. I mean, his record is, is uh, you know, like a Hannibal Lecter. It's, it's not pretty. <laughs> Definitely not pretty. And, of course, Donald Trump will ruthlessly exploit that, won't he? I mean, we're dodging around the edge here uh, saying that he's got cognitive problems and so on. But he's practically a dribbling imbecile, isn't he? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it seems just clear senility, which I, I don't know, maybe that's preferable over the things he actually believes. But uh, but still, it's it, it, he doesn't seem to have his thoughts together. You know, people have put together mashups of uh, five minutes of clips of things he said to voters, things he said during speeches that don't seem to make any sense. Uh, I mean, during some of these debates, looking back and forth, you can tell he doesn't seem to quite know where he is. Uh, what they're hoping uh, is to just put him in as a placeholder president so that he can be surrounded by a establishment that can guide him kind of like the second term of Ronald Reagan. He wasn't really with it, but we can pretend he's president while we do the actual decision making. And either way, it's horrifying. Well, uh, the Manchurian candidate replaced by the Ukrainian uh, candidate. Last question, <laughs> Lee, and I'm grateful for your time. Is it really possible that Lady Macbeth will uh, will have her bloodied hand uh, behind the scenes as vice president hillary clinton is it really possible oh god i don't know i i vomit a little in my mouth every time i think about it but she clearly is setting herself up for something she's putting out documentaries she's tweeting she's got fawning articles being written about her and how how you know she is the 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 still the kind of queen of the democratic party even if she's not running uh so either it's setting up for a vice presidential run or it could be setting her up for 2024 i don't know but there's something in the works and it's uh, it, it terrifying to even think that she would uh, unearth uh, her herself yeah. to, to put put herself forward for another you know placement in our government uh, like after all she's done know. after all her corruption. You're, you're a much younger man than me, but there was a film a long time ago called Carrie, where the the woman leapt back out of the grave. That's how I feel uh, about Hillary Clinton. How do people get your book over this side, Lee? It's fantastic read. Someone brought it back for me. Tell us. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. How do people get it? 
Yes, thank you. It's uh, There actually is a UK site as well, and it's all at LeeCampBook.com. It's got a uh, an intro by Jimmy Dore and a forward by Chris Hedges, and it's uh, called Bullet Points and Punchlines. Fantastic. I, I really urge everyone to get it. I myself have read it. First class. Lee Camp, always. Thank you thank very you. much indeed for joining us. Whose handling of the coronavirus outbreak gives you most confidence? Donald Trump. 10%. Boris Johnson, 24%. Up one. And President Xi of China, 66%. Still on two-thirds of the vote there, Xi. That's Chinese levels of majority. You can vote on my, uh, my Twitter uh, feed. Hafa Dinari, what a wonderful Twitter name, says, where is Boris? Does he have it? Just not enough info coming out. This will become an emergency very quickly if Italy and Spain are anything to go by. And Paul Booker makes a really important point. Iceland Foods at Kennedy Center, West Belfast, will be opening their store between 8 and 9 a.m. for the elderly starting this Tuesday. Wouldn't it be great to see other stores now do the same? It would. Let the old people, the infirm, let them in first so they're not getting killed in the rush by people who are going to buy every toilet roll on the shelf. Please, the shop should be doing this voluntarily. They should be putting a wartime ration on how many of any one thing you can buy. They're going to make the same money whether one person buys it all or all the people buy a little. I, I myself have zero tolerance for that selfishness. And the shops should not be allowing it to happen. And if the shops will not stop it, the government has to stop it. So full marks to Iceland Foods. Aldi have been doing uh, great work also uh, by restricting the number of items, of any one item uh, that people uh, can buy. Uh, I heard that Tesco uh, had begun to do it in some stores. But it needs to become a national policy. We need a national response to all of this. Not every man for himself, not let the devil take the hindmost, not practices here but not there, there but not here. That's why we need leadership. That's why Boris Johnson is failing so very badly, uh, in my opinion. But my opinion is less important than the opinion of our now regular guest. He is the Moats Medic, Dr. Ranjit Brar who joins me from the front line. Uh, Dr. Ranjit, thank you very much for doing so. Summarize, if you will, where we in Britain now stand and how that relates or compares, rather, uh, to our nearest neighbors, uh, like uh, Italy and Spain and now France. George, great pleasure to be with you. Perhaps not under these circumstances, but thank you very much for having me back to talk on the show again. Welcome. Um, it's been a febrile week, there's no other way to describe it. When first we talked two weeks ago, I don't think I could have imagined that we would have found ourselves in this position so soon. But the developments this week have been rapid and each morning has brought new, new news, much of which has been frankly uh, unbelievable in, in some respects. Um, obviously, Dr. Theodoros Gabrashidis announced that this was now a world pandemic, and I think 
by any standards, you'd have to support that conclusion. This is a world pandemic and a very serious now health risk to the populations around the world, not least in the UK. I think to understand exactly what's happening, we have to go back again to the virus and have a look at the new data that's emerging, because both medically, uh, politically and economically, the situation has taken uh, uh, quite a considerable change, a turn of events has occurred, most definitely. Um, if we look at China, um, we know that the overall death rate for the virus fell from 3.4 to 0.7 due to the incredible health measures they put in place. And as we've talked before about some of the most important ones were very widespread testing for the virus. So they actually knew accurately who had it. That's the first piece of information which is so essential for mounting a correct response. And there's been real persistent attempts by government announcements and by media programs to play down that as if it's not important. It absolutely is important. And we know China developed the ability, we know they sequenced the gene, they shared that information, they developed the ability to test 1.8 million people every week. It's a massive number of people. By contrast, the UK is testing 2,000 um, and has plans to extend this to 10,000, but that hasn't happened on any single day. We know that, in fact, only 30,000 people have been tested in total out of our six, uh, 68 million population. So it's a very small rate of testing, less than 400 per million of the population. So we don't have an accurate picture of who actually has the disease. In China, with their measures, the death rate fell, we know, or the case mortality rate, uh, but, the, but, the, but the mortality fell from 3.4 to 0.7, largely because of all the intensive care measures they put in place, the hospitalizations of those needing oxygen, the rapid care and, and prolonged ventilation of those who needed that care. For the first time, we had some reference to the fact that this would be a problem amongst our own population from Matt Hancock, but a woefully inadequate response, in, in my opinion. What's really worrying is what's happening in Italy. Actually, China has a, a quite a mature population. Their uh, population, their life expectancy is very similar to that in our own country. Slightly less, but it's improved massively over the last 50 years. And of course, China has a huge background in combating um, major population pandemics. China, just 100 years ago, even before the Second World War, would have been referred to as the sick man of Asia, contemptuously by countries such as our, our own, partly because of feudalism, partly because of um, uh, uh, well, the exploitation that went on of the Chinese at the hands of foreign powers. But now China's surged ahead and its life expectancy has doubled within a generation, within two generations. Our own population pyramid is similar to Italy's. Italy has been absolutely overwhelmed um, by this pandemic. We know that they've got probably 30,000 cases. We know that there have been 1,800 deaths. And if you look at the death rate that they've experienced, when they're publishing figures today, which shows over 7%, 7.3%. And if we reproduce those kind of figures in just the size of our population we have, you know, Matt Hancock, Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson really scared me when I first saw that interview he gave with Philip Schofield, where he suggested that in discussions in COBRA and in the cabinet, the strategy of the government would be simply to take it on the chin and let this thing run through the population. Matt Hancock said that perhaps 80% of the population would be infected. If 80% of our population is infected, that's 55 million people. If of those we get between 0.7 and 7.0%, there's a huge range of people dying, that's going to be well over half a million. It may be run into, the, into many millions, maybe 4 million. If we experience the kind of death rates 
that are being experienced by Italy. Of course, all of that information is hard to pin down and quantify. It's rapidly changing. And the fact that woefully inadequate testing and therefore insufficient data to actually make an analysis leads to these very wide margins of error. But by any standards, we have to say that the development has been quite startling this week. And what about his silence? I mean, since that very widely uh, criticized uh, interview in which he seemed to say, he, he later denied that that's what he meant, but people can watch the interview. It's hard to avoid the conclusion, the Malthusian uh, conclusion, uh, that, well, you know, this will leave us leaner and fitter and you'll only die if you're old, you'll only die if you've got an underlying health condition. Well, there's a lot of old people and a lot of people with underlying health conditions and there's somebody's brother, sister, somebody's mother or father. There was an insouciance about that interview that I found deeply troubling and it began to shape my own responses. But since then, it's like he's disappeared. I hope he's hard at work, but maybe he's hard at drink, I don't know. It, it's, it's deeply worrying, George. Um, you, you refer to Thomas Malthus, who is one of, considered one of the fathers of population science, who was a reverend of the Victorian era, um, who came up with a theory, essentially, that um, the poverty and starvation seen amongst the working class in Victorian England, the, the Keynesian kind of poverty that Dickens described, hence coining the phrase Dickensian, was essentially the fault of the poor themselves for being feckless, uh, for being poor, for being uh, untalented, for having too many children. This was what he said about the British working class. And that was taken to heart by the British um, wealthy class, the capitalist class, the Victorian imperial class, who took that on as their, uh, one of their major theories. And I was still taught that theory uh, in secondary school in geography classes, you know, the Malthusian population growth, where the population would die off at a certain point. They took that theory to the colonies. I mean, the, the British presided over famines of tens of millions in India, and again, wheeled out the same theory that it wasn't the job of the wealthy in Britain to pay for the lives of the poor in India. It wasn't their job to pay for the privilege of being the colonial rulers. It was the job of the Indians to pay them for being the colonial rulers. But they don't really have a difference in, in, in attitude towards their, you know, at that time, their own working class and the working class elsewhere. This is the, a very stark, quite ugly theory, which they still talk about and discuss at the World Economic Forum of overpopulation. And because that theory is still taught to us, many people still believe it. And when this is going on, you can hear it as an undercurrent in the debate that the world is overpopulated. I absolutely disagree with that theory. It's a theory that justifies the wealthy feeling that their wealth, which is ill-gotten in many, many cases, is not their job to use that to pay for the sick and the poor and the needy. What will that mean if they carry on with that kind of thinking right now? I mean, the people we know are vulnerable to the disease are diabetics. We have four million of them. The elderly population, George, the average, you know, the, the median age of the British population is 40 and a half years old. I mean, it's half the population are over 40. So the numbers who are elderly in that high-risk bracket are tens of millions of people in our country. And these are people who are thought as being relatively mature in life, who've got relatively wealthy, 
therefore relatively conservative in their political outlook, who tend to vote in greater numbers for a conservative government. I don't want to say that Labour have made some startling difference or are coming out with a startling different policy, but it's a genuine concern that this kind of thinking is colouring the response to this virus. The talk of herd immunity, which is really the, the stock phrase that we're told was scientific opinion. This is not scientific opinion. What does herd immunity mean? I mean, vaccination is, uh, was obviously started by Edward Jenner. We're talking about a 220-year-old technology. Edward Jenner coined the term vaccination because vaccine comes from cow, so smallpox. People didn't get smallpox when they'd been exposed to cowpox, and he noticed milkmaids didn't get smallpox. And he postulated that there might be a cross um, immunity between the two diseases, and he went on to show that was the case. And so we know that there are ways of stimulating the immune system by showing them a foreign agent that looks like the infective agent you want their immune system to fight. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the development of a vaccine. We know that won't be around now. But then beyond that, the question, uh, the question arises, how much of the population do you have to immunize before that immunization becomes effective in the general population? And it depends exactly how infective um, the organism you want to fight is. So, you know, chickenpox is a certain amount, the, the flu would be a certain other amount. But, but, but certainly, probably 70 or 80 percent of the population need to be immunized. Uh, because that means that the virus has less of a chance passing from person to person and finding a place to nurture and infect within the population. But that's talking about vaccination. When you give someone a vaccine, you're not giving them an active disease, you're giving them something to help them mount a response to the disease. But here we've conflated this term, which is a term about immunization, with actually just letting the disease, the primary disease itself, run rampant among the population. And it really concerns me. I know, I know my colleagues, I have the greatest of respect for many of my colleagues working in the NHS, nurses, doctors, the frontline staff, they will always do their best with the limited resources that they have. But I can tell you now, whilst I have tremendous, I, I often operate on, on, on patients who are absolutely critically sick and have to go to the intensive care unit. And I can tell you that our intensive care stock in this country is pretty much always at maximal capacity just as is our general stock of hospital beds. Places are, you know, contingency plans are being made to try and expand the availability. And that means turning theatres such as this one into an intensive care room and using our ventilator machine. We have another one in the anti-chamber, in the anaesthetic room of many theatres. And of course, there are a few extra ones lying around unused in ITUs. Bringing all of those online, we wouldn't come anywhere near the numbers that are necessary if we truly are going to let this COVID-19 disease run rampant through the population. And it shows every sign, every sign that that is the intended policy. So while my colleagues are doing their absolute best to formulate emergency plans to put on hold emergency surgery, Wales said they won't have any more uh, um, uh, elective sorry, surgery uh, that would take up those beds. And increasingly, as those cases rise within our country, we're going to have to be taking more and more of those decisions. That in itself has knock-on effects and shows an undercapacity within the system. And it shows that our NHS starved of resources, not just for 10 years. I mean, our Labour Party put forward a very good um, statement, but they indicated that this underfunding and unresourcing is, an, is a novel phenomenon. I'm afraid it's not, George. It's a systematic policy that is fattening the NHS for privatization. Um, and I'm afraid that, that the precarious state in general we've reached in terms of overall capacity, with an, a massive increase in capacity potentially caused by this crisis, and now I, 
I must join in saying it, it is a crisis that is not just overhyped. It's, it's a very worrying situation. Will leave us in a desperate situation. And we've already seen in Italy very difficult decisions. I've got no criticism of the, of the medical staff who work with the resources they've got, but of having patients present. Many patients who need the same care, limited care, ventilatory care, and then having to make very difficult triage decisions. And it will be the old and infirm who are thought less likely to recover, who will not get care and will not survive if we don't take some very drastic and radical action. And yes, I think we should be increasing our bed stock. I think that if that means requisitioning private beds, I think that should absolutely be looked at and be done. Of course, we can do it if there's a political will. Um, we need to increase our ventilator capacity uh, and very, very quickly. And of course, we definitely need, you know, to carry on and demand. You know, patients must absolutely demand the right to be tested. I agree with self-isolation. Patients who are fit enough should stay at home. Still a large number of people will get the disease and be fine. Some will be asymptomatic, maybe only 10%, but they will. Many will have a mild disease, probably much more than half the people who contract will have a mild disease and recover and get immunity. But large numbers will need more intensive treatment and large numbers will present. And if we test, we will know who we're self-isolating. We've got a chance of limiting the spread. And it's not too late for that. I think Theodore Gabrigesus himself made that point. Declaring this a pandemic does not mean we cannot act, and it doesn't change the actions we should take. We need to diagnose, we need to test, we need to treat, we need to expand our capacity, and I think that's incredibly, incredibly important, and must become a demand. If I, I, I'm not normally an advocate of writing to your MP, but if you were going to write to your MP about one thing, it would be to demand those measures, demand testing, demand an increase in capacity, demand an increase in ventilatory care, demand the requisitioning of further spaces to care for people who will be infected because we don't know the true numbers. And already there may be as many as 10,000 or more people suffering from COVID-19. I heard some of your show earlier on, and I was you know, startled, but perhaps not totally surprised to hear of the case in Milton Keynes of a lady who was diagnosed post-mortem. And, and perhaps if I can just say, what I've been going on for a long time, perhaps so I can say one more thing that I found very interesting is to see that in the United States, to see the absolute numbers of cases who are going undiagnosed, to the extent that there may be more cases in the United States than actually there were in China. While China has still totally got a lid on this now, has totally controlled it. And it was even suggested by the Chinese foreign minister that actually the initial spread may have been from the United States to China, and that they may have brought it in um, uh, during the military games which were staged in Wuhan. Uh, I've actually got a piece uh, on this now. I'm going to talk about it uh, in a few minutes' uh, time, about the uh, army games. Lastly, and it's the $64,000 question, do I send my children to school tomorrow? That's what a lot of parents are asking for guidance on, Ranjit, and they're not getting it from our political leaders. It's a very difficult question. My children are going to school. Um, I've heard stories of um, the COVID-19 disease being diagnosed in schools and the schools not being shut down. I mean, if appropriate action is being taken at a, at a, at a national level, of course we should all 
follow it. But that you, you do not feel, you know, just simply saying, my advice is science, do nothing, and, and, and using nudge theory and really, uh, you know, behavioral scientists. I, I know that the Tories are very into behavioral science at the moment. I think they've applied it quite cleverly to, to game their election polling. But this is not a this is not a this is not a game. This is not an election. Elections are not a trivial matter, but this is far more serious and far more important than you know manipulating people's behavior. People will follow advice if they have trust in the advice that's being given. As a health professional, I feel a tremendous responsibility not to panic monger, not to stir up trouble. But it seems to me that the measures being taken at a governmental level are woefully inadequate. My colleagues, I know, are drawing up contingency plans to do the very, very best with what they have. But we don't have to look very far to Italy to see that. If we don't also increase our capacity, what we have won't be enough. And that will lead inevitably to a problem. And it's at that point, it's just the ability to plan service that used to be an inherent part of the NHS. Part of the process of privatizing the NHS has been to take away our ability to plan. You know, actually the whole process of kicking out funding to groups of primary care trusts, to, to groups of GPs who themselves can't plan, and their gradual merging of those finances held by primary care trusts, both with uh, management consultancy firms who are doing the planning, and on the other hand, with increasingly with the health insurance industry, you know, are actually taking control away from the health professionals and into a class of managers who have a dual purpose, you know, a dual purpose. One, yes, to provide you know, the NHS with the current framework, but their constant purpose is to introduce the US-style system in our country. And you only have to look at the United States now to see how woefully inadequate it is in actually dealing with the health needs of their population. Which items the most important to have during the crisis? A. Toilet paper, 6%. B. Hand sanitizer, 29%. C. Tinned food, 65%. You've still got time uh, to join that. Some breaking news from the United States. Donald Trump is currently holding a news conference in Washington, D.C. He's just announced that the U.S. Federal Reserve has cut interest rates to near zero in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Two previous guests on the mother of all talk shows, Rania Kalek and Abby Martin, both predicted it. And Rachel Blevins last week, I think, also said this would happen. And she said on this program that the U.S. is not prepared for this crisis. Hall of Fame, wall of shame. No Hall of Fame, no pantheon of great people would be complete without Britain's wartime leader, Winston Churchill. It's a cliche, but only because it's true to say that but for Winston Churchill, I'd be speaking to you in German right now. The truth is, if Hitler had successfully invaded and conquered Britain, then I wouldn't be saying anything at all because I and many thousands, maybe millions like me, would have been liquidated. Churchill never questioned himself. He firmly believed himself a man of destiny. And didn't he just prove it? He was a truly inspirational leader with a magnificent turn of phrase. For as long as there is life on this planet, his words will resonate. 
speaking after the evacuation of Dunkirk in June 1940, when 300,000 British troops escaped after the German onslaught had marooned them, he said, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. And we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No audio record was made at the time of the original speech. Churchill only produced one after the war in 1949 by repeating the previous speech. Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill was born in 1874 into a wealthy and aristocratic family. He joined the British Army in 1895 and saw military action in British India, the Anglo-Sudan War and the Second Boer War, gaining fame as a war correspondent and writing books about his campaigns. Elected as an MP in 1900, initially as a Conservative, he defected to the Liberals in 1904. In Asquith's Liberal government, Churchill served as President of the Board of Trade, Home Secretary and First Lord of the Admiralty. During the First World War, he oversaw the Gallipoli campaign, which proved a disaster. He resigned from the government and served in the Royal Scots Fusiliers on the Western Front. In the 1930s, Churchill took the lead in calling for British rearmament to counter the growing threat from Nazi Germany. At the outbreak of the Second World War, he was reappointed First Lord of the Admiralty. And in 1940, he became Prime Minister, replacing the appeaser, Neville Chamberlain. And this is crucial. After Dunkirk, before the victory in the Battle of Britain, when it was overwhelmingly likely that Hitler and his hordes would invade and arrive here on our island, at least half of Churchill's cabinet wanted to surrender. They wanted to surrender to fascism either because they believed that it could not be stopped could not be defeated by us alone or because in many cases they were secretly and oftentimes not so secretly sympathetic to fascism and Nazism. And when Churchill said that not until all of us are lying choking on our own blood on the floor of this cabinet room Will we succumb? A lot of them were shifting uneasily. You see, a lot, I've dealt with this in my book, in Queensway, which is a counterfactual 
history of what might have happened. The fifth columnist in the parliament, in the palace, in the cabinet. The fifth columnists in business, in the city, in the aristocracy. Even among some admirals of the Royal Navy, those fifth columnists would have gladly wrung Churchill's neck because his refusal to surrender made possible the later entry into the war of the Soviet Union and the United States of America. If we had not had Churchill and had had Halifax or Chamberlain instead, we would have surrendered. Hitler would have been here. And the great victory that we will celebrate on May the 9th, the victory day over fascism and Nazism, Hitlerism, would never have occurred. So Winston Churchill enters my Hall of Fame this evening, but he also enters my wall of shame. How's that for a paradox? Because but for that moment in 1940 and 1941, Churchill was a scoundrel of the first order, a criminal, a murderer, a man whose sins and crimes were almost without number. He was the hero that saved Britain, but he was also a braggart, a bigot, an opponent of female emancipation, an opponent of all moves for home rule, a drunk and a glutton, Bigotry and recklessness were the hallmark of his career and weigh heavily against his merits on the balance sheet. In February 1895, he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the 4th Queen's Own Hussars. He was eager to witness military action. He used his mother's influence to get himself posted to a war zone. In his early political career, he declared himself a liberal in all but name, but added that he could never endorse the Liberal Party's support for Irish home rule. Thus the blood of the Irish people, then and long since, is on his hands. He also supported the promotion of secular non-denominational education whilst opposing women's suffrage referring to the suffragettes as a ridiculous movement. But it was his contempt for other races, which is summed up by what he told the Palestine Royal Commission in 1937, and I quote, I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. He also advocated the use of chemical weapons, primarily against the Kurdish people and the Afghans, on both of whom he dropped chemical weapons from biplanes. 
He said in Parliament, I cannot understand this squeamishness about the use of gas. He wrote in a memo during his role as Minister for War and Air in 1919. He said, I'm not making this up, it's in the memo. I am strongly in favour of using poisoned gas against uncivilised tribes. Just ponder that one. Less well known is that he and Britain developed poison gas at the British Chemical Weapons Facility at Porton Down, and that he used them against the Russians in northern Russia in the summer and autumn of 1919. Those caught in the cloud of gas vomited blood, then collapsed unconscious. However, the gas was less effective than Churchill hoped, possibly due to the damp weather. And what was left of the 50,000 canisters of poison gas, Winston Churchill ordered dumped in the White Sea, where they remain uh, to this day. And in 1919, the same year, as Secretary of State, he sent in tanks and an estimated 10,000 soldiers to Glasgow during a period of widespread strikes and civil unrest amid fear of a Bolshevist revolt. That was where Red Clyde's side began. Contemporary photographs show tanks and armed soldiers in George Square in my old constituency in the city centre outside the city chambers. I said earlier that Churchill opposed Irish Home Rule in January 1919. He was just 11 days into the job of War Secretary when the Irish War of Independence began. His role in Ireland is most associated with deploying the killers, the ruffians, the scum of the black and tans to fight the Irish people and their just struggle for Irish unity, freedom and independence. He was a fervent Zionist, supported the establishment of the State of Israel in what was then called Palestine, but he was also casually anti-Semitic, like so many uh, of these people. He hated socialism, he hated trade unions, he hated uncivilized tribes, he hated children of a lesser God. So with all the passion uh, that I put into entering Winston Churchill into my Hall of Fame, I equally passionately write his name on the wall of shame. Let's take two calls. Adil is in Oregon, in the United States. Go ahead, Adil. Hello, Mr. Galloway. I uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, I have to say I really admire your uh, critical, uh, you know, uh, your critical uh, message on a lot of issues, including uh, this this one on uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, Churchill. Okay. I just wanted to make a, a comment on just you know I think that there's a I, I find there is somewhat uh, somewhat of a promotion of China because of this coronavirus, 
And, there is, you know, for example, there's been talk about um, how China was able to quickly build uh, hospitals, uh, you know, um, within a week. Ten that days. House all Ten these. days, yeah. And they're not closed, actually. Oh, okay. I didn't know they were closed. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, uh, you know, the suggestion that, you know, that the U.S. could have been behind uh, engineering and even planting this uh, this coronavirus uh, within China. I just think that, you know, we, you know, we have to be very careful about over-promoting China. Uh, China is an authoritarian government at the end of the day. They have been, uh, you know, it, it has been well established that China has also suppressed uh, you know, doctors on the ground from actually trying to get the information out to their population, to authorities. And that resulted in the death of one of the doctors, who was a 35-year-old doctor, who, who was one of the uh, first uh, persons who tried to warn people. And so I, I don't find China to be a, a, an exemplary model at all. If anything, right now, they are correcting their initial mistakes. Uh, and just going back to my initial uh, comment about the U.S., you know, the, the, the suggestion that the U.S. could, you know, I, I think that, you know, I agree with a lot of critical outlook on the U.S. government. You know, uh, I think there's, there's a lot of incompetence. There's a lot of malevolence. Uh, but this idea that, you know, that the decision-making hierarchy of the U.S. could actually be responsible for planting such a disease that has a global consequence on the entire world, mm. I just find that to be outrageous. I mean, unless the facts come, and mm. I could be proven wrong here. Yeah, you could be, uh, so you better not dig yourself uh, very much deeper into this hole. You're obviously a young man that didn't watch the United States drop an ocean of chemical weapons on the people of Indochina in the late 1960s and early 70s. I, alas, am old enough to remember it very vividly indeed. You obviously uh, didn't know uh, that the United States exploded not one but two nuclear bombs on the people of Japan, uh, which uh, is still causing uh, deformed, malformed, dead children to be born in Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, all these decades, more than 70 years after the war. The idea, Adel, the very idea that the United States might have murdered their own president, John F. Kennedy, because of their opposition to uh, his policies. The idea that they might have murdered Martin Luther King, that they might have murdered Robert uh, Kennedy uh, to stop him becoming the president. All these things are outrageous, I presume, to you. Now, I have absolutely zero evidence that the United States uh, military, military, athletes at the World Military Games in Wuhan, in China, just weeks before the beginning of this outbreak. I have zero evidence that the American military, military athletes at those games did anything untoward. But if you're asking me to declare that this is so fantastic and outrageous a possibility, I've got to say, as I said earlier, you must be a very young man, a very forgiving man, or a man that isn't quite as critical of your country's role as you maybe think it is. Because I'm here to tell you that the American empire is capable of anything. Over to you, Adil. Last word. Well, uh, it's difficult to come back on that. You're quite right. Um, 
I'm not as aware about all, all the, the historical uh, missteps and uh, that have been done. Um, I, I just would like to believe that at least, uh, you know, Don't, I, Adel, now. Uh, let me tell you that when we were the empire, there was nothing about our empire that should automatically be disbelieved. And you should not automatically disbelieve anything about yours. Not because we're British or because we're American, but because we were empires. That's what empires do. The United States is in an existential struggle with China over the future of the 21st century. The United States has got warships in the South China Sea. It's got uh, nuclear-armed aircraft in the air over the disputed Chinese territories above the South China Sea. The United States has got alliances and seeks to buttress them with nuclear weapons around China. The United States is in a trade war with China. It's carrying out economic sanctions with China. So why would it be automatically so fantastic that it couldn't possibly be true that they were up to some mischief at the military games, Adel? Thanks for the call and for your spirit. And don't be a stranger, come back on me again. But I've got to go to Guy in Stoke-on-Trent on the coronavirus. Go ahead, Guy. Yes, hi, George. Uh, at this moment, the news is fully about COVID-19 coronavirus. Uh, and I read in disbelief that in 2017, uh, there was a pandemic bond which was sold by the World Bank. Um, it was a very appealing tool, a product, an investment, that it was oversubscribed by 200%. Uh, they eventually sold almost $500 million worth of uh, bond worldwide. Um, the clause was that it would mature in July 2020. Now, the World Health Organization has called... Uh, that there is a pandemic bond, that that was the clause which would, which would, um, the idea being that if there was a pandemic, this money would now be used to assist the poor countries of the world in combating this disease and prevent uh, fatalities. Um, and as far as I'm aware, I've seen nothing on the, on the mainstream news about this issue, this money, this investment. I've read stuff on the internet from the Washington Post and, and other journals, but as regards... I knew nothing of this either, Guy, and I'm grateful for you bringing it to our attention. Maybe we can give it to uh, Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson, if you don't mind, because he's demanding uh, that the taxpayer bail out Virgin Airlines, don't you know? Uh, he's doing so from the island that he owns in the tax havens, of the British Virgin Islands. As uh, the great satirist, Irish satirist, Han Dodgers uh, said on Twitter today, as soon as I heard about this pandemic, the first thing I thought of was to set up a GoFundMe to bail out Richard Branson. Guy, thanks for bringing that up. I've got to go to the worst affected state in the United States, the Washington state, to hear from someone there, Brooke. Brooke, welcome. Hi, uh, thank you for having me on. <laughs> Tell me, uh, how yes, bad is uh, it? How bad is it there? Well, 
you can tell that traffic and just you know uh, people being out on the streets uh, is not anywhere near where, where it used to be. I am actually uh, about 10 miles outside of Seattle. Uh, Seattle was bustling uh, just a couple, maybe three weeks ago. It was, you know, especially on weekends, you saw a lot of millennials, uh, a lot of younger people partying and, you know, enjoying life, meeting up. Uh, but uh, that's apparently just gone down quite a bit. Um, we hear stories of restaurants uh, closing or uh, cutting staff significantly, uh, which is disrupting uh, the economy. Uh, recently, I, again, I'm not the, an authority on this, but uh, there's news that uh, Bill Gates uh, dropped off the uh, board of Microsoft, you know, after so many years, and uh, he's apparently going to try to be involved in this area uh, to do some, some work, you know, to help uh, the people of the Seattle area. So there's there's a lot going on. Uh, the governor issued uh, a warning to people to uh, avoid uh, social uh, gatherings, uh, try to uh, stay home if possible, try to supply on two weeks of uh, groceries and, uh, you know, whatever it takes to mitigate the situation. Um, I think we are being looked at as one of the first states to respond to the crisis and what we do might potentially serve as a template to others. I don't know. Have you got confidence uh, but, in, in your president, in your political class? Honestly, I, uh, I do not, uh, only because it seems like there is a lot of uh, just profiteering going on. Uh, I think there are a lot of people trying to capitalize on the situation. Um, so it's a mixed bag, and there's also genuine uh, help out there as well. There are people who are concerned. There are people who do care about their communities. So it's it, it's it's a mixed bag right mm -hmm. now. Um, um, actually, initially when I first called, it was uh, because I read uh, something. I mean, it's sad but funny. Uh, you know, you know, Alex Jones. He uh, was peddling some medication that's apparently turning skin blue, and I, I was just thinking they're making blue people walking around with MAGA hats, coughing, thinking it's the seasonal allergies or something. Uh, but uh, it's, it's not funny. I, I mean, wouldn't buy a second-hand motor car from Alex Jones, uh, Brooke. Yeah. Thank you very much indeed for that call. There's time only for one last call. It's from Wales. It's from Barry in Wales, again, on the coronavirus. Barry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, Barry Jones, no, not Barry Island. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I had a call from a friend of mine in Spain, uh, Gareth. Uh, he said that uh, they are, uh, there's a severe clampdown on people in in Spain. There's a lockdown. People have been going out, walking their dogs, and been beaten up by the police. Other people have been cycling around. They've been stopped and beaten up by the police. Um, he knows three people that's been that have been attacked. Um, here in Wales, I'm a 74-year-old. Um, single parent um, and uh, I'm supposed to stay at home I understand and not, not go out That's, that'll be very interesting um, well if you're 74 you'll be arrested if you do go out <laughs> it's going to be compulsory that you stay indoors well, how do you feel about that <laughs> I think uh, they'll probably have to arrest me um, <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't see me being locked, locked down well um, there's a countryman of yours uh, Dylan Thomas who said rage, rage against the dying of the light. Yeah. 
Yes. Do not go quietly into that good night. Barry, stay safe, stay safe, all of you. We'll be uh, announcing on social media our midweek slot, if we can put it together, if we can get it to air uh, on the uh, fast-moving coronavirus crisis and the slow-moving political class uh, that we have at the helm. Poll 2 is closed now. Toilet paper, 6% of you think that's the most important. Hand sanitizer, 32%, and tin food, 62%. 1,590 of you have voted uh, on that. It's, uh, it's been marvelous uh, for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, uh, then come back again next week at the same time and the same place and bring someone with you. Set yourself the task of telling one other person how much you found this show useful this evening and give them the details and push them to log on, watch or listen to the mother of all talk shows next week. That way, well, we double our numbers. It doesn't have to be bad news, you know, exponential, but it's been exponentially bad this last week. I hope we're all still together this time next week. <laughs>